Greetings, greetings, fellow Who Gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. And our journey is going to be delayed by one week due to some recent events in the world of Doctor Who and due to a slight schedule conflict with one of my upcoming guests, I am pushing back the show by a week. Anchor, the podcasting platform, has this thing where they divide your show up into seasons, although you get to decide the season boundaries. We've covered all the Target books, published in 1974 and 1975. Our next episode is Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster, which is the first book of 1976. I've decided this is the ideal place to take a break between quote-unquote season 1, 74 and 75 books, and quote-unquote season 2, the 76 and 77 books. But your old pal Jason is not going to leave you hanging. I am dedicating the rest of this show to two features of Doctor Who fandom. Number one, we lost earlier this week, Linda Barron, one of Doctor Who's longest-serving recurring guest stars. She made her first appearance on the show in 1966 and her last appearance in 2011. If you think about it, that's an even longer stretch than Nicholas Courtney, who was 1968 through 2008. Obviously, Nicholas Courtney was a much larger figure in Doctor Who fandom, but Linda Barron gave my money three of my all-time favorite guest performances, and I've got a friend coming by to join me to talk about what Linda Barron means to us in Doctor Who fandom. So here, fast falling prey to every cliche-ridden convention in the American West is my good friend, Joe Ford. So fill up your glasses and join in the song. The Lord's right behind you and it won't take long. So come you coyotes and howl at the moon Till there's blood upon the sawdust in the last chance And here we go. If you've been listening to this show for a while, and if you haven't, why haven't you? You've heard me mention often the Joe Ford Expanded Podcasting Universe. I have had many guests from the Joe Ford Expanded Podcasting Universe, but there's one whale that I have not landed yet, and that is Joe Ford himself. And I have finally landed him, and he's here on Doctor Who Literature, the Target Books podcast, to not talk about a Target book, because Joe's going to do... What Joe's going to do. Joe, welcome finally to the program. Oh, man, I love talking with you. You make me feel like I'm famous. Do you know what? It's like it's like the absolute Z-list sort of celebrity famous, though. You know, like, <laughs> it's, so, it's so basically infamous, really, isn't it? Everybody knows you. You are the universal connector. And I think of all my guests so far, probably 95% of them have come to me through one of your shows first. Well, do you know what I do? So you, I look over my, I looked over my shoulder to start off with, flight for entirety, trap one, things like that. And I was like keeping an ear out for who was really, really good. I poached all of them. Then I brought in a load of newbies, and now they're poaching them off me. <laughs> 
I was already on trap one when you discovered me about a little over a year ago for Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, but I have freely been poaching your back catalog. Uh, and now we've got a, a, a like a famous contentious relationship podcasting together. Uh, Warriors of the Deep has gone down in history. You see, this is the nice show. This is yeah, the friendly I'm, show. I'm, I'm going to play nice, don't worry. There's passionate opinions expressed, but everybody loves the Target books. There's not a whole lot of fighting going on. Yeah, can I tell you something about the Target books? Uh-oh, here we go. I admitted this on track one, you know, when they when they did a Target book, uh, like expose, you know, everyone gave their opinions. And blah, blah, blah. I had the entire collection of Target novels, right? And when I relocated from Crawley to Eastbourne, I had to, my other half at the time said, something's got to go. We can't take all of this Doctor Who stuff. Something's got to go. And I put the entire collection of Target novels in a bin bag and threw them in a skip. The whole lot. And to this day, I'm, I'm recollecting them to this day. And I haven't got them all yet. It breaks my heart to think about it now. But there we go. I've just given all of your listeners a conniption fit and palpitations. You had, let's just get this straight. You had in your possession 160 of the greatest books of all, all of them. time. I had all of them. And you put them in a 30-gallon black trash bag and put them yeah. on the curb, and that was the end of it. No, no, I actually put them in a skip. There was a skip around the back. Oh, my goodness. So they're probably under some landfill somewhere, you know, uh, under the ground. As we call them here, dumpsters. Oh, my goodness. That is... See, I've been ca- I've been literally carrying my Target books around the fruited plain of the United States going back to 1985, they have moved with me from house to house. They moved with me across country twice to California and then back to New York. So it's done a couple of 3,000-mile cross-country moves. This is my third apartment since I landed in Brooklyn in 2008, and it's been with me in every apartment. I have, I, If I reach my arm across the table right now, I will have a Target book in my hand. This is the Loch Ness Monster because next week's episode I have already recorded the interview for. What is that strange cover of that Loch Ness Monster book? You've never seen the Pinnacle books? No, okay. I've, got, I, I've got the fabulous one with Tom Baker and the Loch Ness Monster on it. The, the so, real one, the Scarisand. So starting in 1979, this New York-based publishing house called Pinnacle basically had a line in right-wing thriller fiction. And they were, they were looking for cheap books that they could, you know, acquire from somebody else. So they have the license to the Knight Rider books. And if you look at the ad on the back page, there's David Hasselhoff's uh, Remarkable Face. There's three novelizations of Knight Rider stories, including my favorite title ever, Trust Doesn't Rust. Oh my god. (laughs) So they made a deal with Target, and they got the license to publish ten Target titles uh, in chronological order, going from Day of the Daleks up through, I think, Mask of... Oh, Talons of Wayne Chiang was chronologically their last book. Because they not use, like, the Doctor's images and things like that? Because I'm telling you, that Zygon looks very like the Vin Vocci from the end of time on the front cover of that book. This is the... Tar- the, the Pinnacle line had the Day of the Daleks cover has an actual growling ape instead of an Ogron. And- oh, wait! And a spaceship! A unit spaceship! A unit spaceship. What yes. the hell is that all about? I've seen that cover. David Mann is a very accomplished, well-known culture artist. He has a Wikipedia page. He did all the covers. Later on, he started getting photo references to use. So the Zygon cover is actually a little more photorealistic than the 
day of the Daleks one. Jason, they're, they're, they're striking covers. Do you remember when we did that commentary of the Space Pirates episode two uh, for April Fool's Day? And I said to you, what if the John Pertwee era had been inspired by the Space Pirates instead of the invasion? Yeah. Well, maybe he was tapping into that. And that's why there's that unit spaceship on the cover. I'm pretty sure that the Valiant, which is the new series unit spaceship, was a direct reference from the Pinnacle books. Might very might possibly have been, but I'm assuming the books inside are the same, right? It's the same. Novel. Yes, yes, and no. They Americanized them, so they changed the oh, spelling, no. and they changed the punctuation. However, they did not change the dialect. I'm sorry, so, I'm going to say this. I realize this is an insult to you, but bloody Americans, honestly, can't leave things alone, can you? Hey. Eh? These books were for American kids. We needed something familiar. We needed words spelled in our language rather than yours. But they left in the bad Scottish dialect for the character Jock on the first page of Loch Ness Monster. So they didn't change that. So Pinnacle, they had these 10 books, right? They were able to reprint the books every year. 10 editions in 10 years of every book. That'll do well for you money-wise. So these books kept selling and selling. And every time they did a reprint, they would change the logo color on the front cover. So there are some books where the logo might be in green, might be in gold, might be in red, might be in blue. And there are collectors out there who collect every variant of every pinnacle book. Oh, oh some people got more money than sense, but God bless them. <laughs> now that we've got our book chat in, let's talk about the real reason that we are here. We are here to celebrate. We are here to honor. We are here to worship my all-time favorite Doctor Who guest actor, and apart from John Fraser and Legopolis, probably your second all-time favorite Doctor Who guest actor. And that would be... Linda Barron. Linda Barron, who passed away earlier this week as we record this on Friday the 11th of March, 2022. It has been an incalculable loss. I have been saddened by the loss of Doctor Who actors and guest performers before. But I want to tell you... Let me tell you a confession, Joe. It's just between you and me. Okay, Which, I'm, I'm ready. If you look at my listening numbers, that's pretty much all it is, you and me. Oh, uh, shut up. <laughs> Let I, me go and get the world's smallest violin. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Since the first time that I watched Gunfighters, this would be late 1985, mm. there has probably never been a day where I don't have the Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon in my head at some point. I mean, and that is... The voice of Linda Barron has been the one true constant in my head for years and years and decades now. Every time I saw an obituary on Twitter, um, I had, so fill up your glasses and join in the fun. Oh, listen, it just started going straight, and I'm going to confess something to you now. Are you ready for this? Uh-oh. I had that song, right? Because a lot of people find it very irritating, don't they? I can't think why. I think it's a marvellous way of telling a narrative in a Western comedy. Um, I had it as my phone ring tune for nearly a year. And honest to God, if I was on a train or on a bus, it was hilarious seeing people's reactions. You know me. You know, I don't care, you know. But suddenly, on, on this silent train, there'd be Linda Barron singing <laughs> Uh, see here's the thing about the song episode one episode two these things are being written week by week they have the same two verses over and over again 
If you are watching this thing in movie format, which for a long time is the only way that it was available in the States, you would hear the same verse of the song over and over again. If you go on YouTube, there is an edit where they have every single verse from the ballad in one video. It's about ten and a half minutes long. The first four minutes are just all the same iterations <laughs> the same verse from episodes one and two. However, Rex Tucker, the director, was a very smart man. And he said, I just can't have the same song in studio over and over again during the four weeks of recording. So I, Rex Tucker, am going to write new verses. And he wrote wild, crazy, insane comedic verses for episodes three and four. So it starts off when um, the youngest Earp brother is conked on the head by one of the Clantons. And Linda Barron comes back to the recording booth and she starts singing, So pick him up gentle and carry him low. He's gone kind of mental. And then the piano just goes crazy with the descending scales. <laughs> Under Herb's heavy blow. Do -do 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 So pick him up gentle and carry him slow. He's gone kind of mental under herbs heavy blow. I love the It's Curtains for Charlie. The gunfire. It's great. Oh my God, I love it so much. And I love that story so much as well. But part of the reason I love that story is that song gives it a very Anybody distinctive Anybody can go edge. into a recording booth and lay down a track and sing. If you listen to that song one too many times, and I'm afraid I've fallen into that category, you hear the different inflections and facial expression. You can actually see Linda Barron's face in your mind comedically smiling or frowning <laughs> or scowling depending on what the verse calls for. And when the gunfighters gets dark in episode four, and boy, howdy, does it get dark, her voice performs the darkness. So there's this extended verse leading into the OK Corral. Uh, you know, the Herbs and the Clantons are going to meet at the OK Corral on Calamity Street. Take it away, Joe. The herbs oh, no, and the, the Clantons, they played out the game. They played out the game, and we never more shall hear a story like of the OK Corral. And the song gets slow. I'm not even doing it justice. You are a wasted talent. I have wasted many things in my life, and I have wasted a lot of talents, and I'm wasting a perfectly good singing voice right here. I, I could not agree more. I mean, I think it is probably, I know we're absolutely celebrating Linda Barron here. It's worth um, commenting that like this story for quite a while was a bit infamous and the song was a bit infamous as well. But I feel like in the last sort of 10, 15 years, there's been a massive turnaround with the gunfires and the song and there's just suddenly um, like a, a renewed fan appreciation for the story. I will tell you that I first saw it in 85 on PBS. Loved it. 
and then in eighty in eighty seven, my local station got the got the episodic version. So I got that episode one cliffhanger, which is Steven singing and Dodo playing the piano, and it's the greatest. It is my ultimate comfort cliffhanger. If I am in a bad mood, I put on the cliffhanger to part one, where Stephen performs and the piano is going nuts, and then the song bleeds into the closing credits. It's like that. It's your last chance of living. It's, it's your last chance of right. It's your last. Yeah, I got the words wrong. Do you know what though, right? I for years I thought Linda Barron was the one who played Kate. I thought that was her because she sings the song, right? Well, she doesn't it's sing it, does it? It's voice when Kate is singing it in part two. So, anyway, when I got a little bit older and I bought Doctor Who a Celebration, I read Jeremy Bentham's scorching review. He did a one paragraph review of every episode from the first twenty stories, and he was pretty much nice were courteously deferential to every story except the only story that he trashed out of the entire, you know, what is it, 120 capsule summaries was the gunfighters. Because nobody in the UK could watch that episode, his opinion became the received wisdom. Yeah. Well, Hal Stammers and Walker had a few things to say as well in their handbooks. Which didn't help. Is that Jeremy Bentham on the one where he was talking about the ratings? Like it was the lowest ratings ever, and it was at such an erroneous. He was right fact about the audience appreciation figures. According to the DVD, they had to put a new chart on the wall to track the, the decreasing audience appreciation figures. The ratings were good. So, I was just going to say I, the discontinuity oh, sorry, guy comes no, out in '95. That was the first publication that loved the Gunfighters. And ever since then, The Gunfighters has been on the upswing. Peter Purvis used to hate it because he had bad memories of making it. Then he watched it at a convention. He changed his mind as well. He changed his mind as well now. He's, yeah. He saw it and said, actually, do you know what? I was embarrassed making it, but it, it's, it was made it's really well. One of my favorite of stories, and it's not just because of Linda Barron. I mean, the dialogue is hilarious. It takes a sudden dark turn and it grabs you in part four. Some of the American accents are off, yes, but so what? There have been worse American accents in Doctor Who, and there have been worse British accents in America. Hello, Kevin Costner. If you're listening, you were terrible in Robin Hood, uh, Prince of Thieves. So you, you can't blame the gunfighters just because some of the American accents don't sound very American. No. Um... So the herbs and the clankens are aiming to meet at the OK Corral near Calamity Street. It's the OK Corral boys of gunfighting fame where the herbs and the clankens they played out the game. They played out the game and we never more shall hear a story the like of the OK Corral. Do you know though, right, 
gunfighters aside, and I know we're going to skip into her next Doctor Who appearance, which is probably her most famous, and it's just fabulous on a level I can't even explain. Um, I am most used to seeing Linda Barron in Open All Hours as Nurse Gladys Emanuel. Now, that was a staple in my household when I was growing up. And uh, have you ever watched it? I have never seen it. I don't think it ever made its way to PBS in the States. We showed a lot of British series on PBS under the Masterpiece Theatre banner, but I don't believe that was ever a Masterpiece Theatre selection. So uh, it's Ronnie Barker, who is possibly the, 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 you know, the, the strongest comedian actor uh, Britain has ever produced and David Jason who's probably second and Linda Barron is uh, she plays this kind of like frumpy well no frumpy no she was beautiful uh, nurse who's always rebutting this uh, store owner's advances uh, all the time and uh, but being a bit flirtatious with it as well and always giving him you know like a bit of hope that he's going to see some leg uh, in, the, in the way that only 70s sitcoms can and uh, oh, she was marvellous in it and just beautiful as well. He was always going up ladders trying to get in her bedroom and all sorts. You know, It was the 70s. It was a different time. But yeah, no, uh, I think I think it's worth noting her performance in that because that's that's the thing I think most Brits would recognise her from. When you were sitting there on the train and Linda Barron starts singing because you're getting a phone call, did anybody recognize her voice and say, that's Linda Barron, that is? Surprisingly, no. <laughs> I'm just going to say, again, she, she doesn't appear on screen in The Gunfighters, but her vocals are so good and the lyrics are so good, especially at the end when Rex Tucker, when Rex Tucker starts writing them. I love The Gunfighters, and I will not have a bad word said about it. And apart from folks who read about it in Jeremy Bentham's chapter in A Celebration First, unless you saw that first and it swayed you, at this point, I don't think there are too many detractors of The Gunfighters left. No, and if they are, well, they can bugger off, can't they? And I will say that the history is entirely wrong. Nothing about the history of The Gunfighters is accurate. It gets every single fact wrong. Yeah, but when has Doctor Who history ever been accurate? Have you seen Victory of the Daleks? <laughs> I like Victory of the Daleks. I'll tell you now, Churchill was nothing like that, all right? <laughs> well, what about, what about Enlightenment then? Now, I know you and me have talked about season 20, haven't we, in a lot of depth. Let me do a quick cross-plug because Joe, who has at least three podcasts that he headlines in his own podcast expanded universe... Your original show, which is how I rediscovered you, because you, you and I were, of course, famously rivals on the Doctor Who Ratings Guide in print 20 years ago. And if you want to listen to my hamster on Legopolis, Joe and I will exchange some careful words about our respective reviews on the Ratings Guide from many, many years ago. I never knew that you was my rival. This came as a massive surprise to me, you know. That, but then I think we were referencing each other in reviews and things, weren't we? So, yeah. It was more the, you were the review directly under mine and you were obliquely trashing my review without saying that it was mine, so. I've got to say, can I just say something very quickly, right? Cause, and it is about target novels as well, is that your target novel reviews on the Doctor Who Raids Guide 
are marvellous. And I don't think there are other reviews like that that go into that kind of depth. Like you quote the pros, you talk about the structure, the characterization, the differences. In, and I remember I spent one day, an entire day, trawling through the Doctor Who ratings guide, finding every target review that you read. Literally, I've probably spent about 12 hours reading your reviews. And anybody who hasn't read them, go and find them. They are the best that's out there. The creme de la creme of Target book reviews. I will point out that I've done 18 episodes, 17 have been released, and those are all based on my blog. However, I did not blog every book. I do have a lot of episodes coming up where all I have is my ratings guide review. So you will be hearing the spoken word version of many of those reviews coming up in the follow in the following months. I also have several more that Stacy hasn't really Stacy is like I have sent Stacy so much during the pandemic that she is now on a two year backlog of Jason reviews. <laughs> so the last let me see, what was the last review of mine that Stacy posted? The last That means there's more the to last, come. The last review of mine that Stacy posted was my review of Earthshock and I wrote that before the pandemic. So there is a lot there is a lot coming. Are there a lot of Target ones coming? Because I love those so much. There's a lot of Target ones coming. Because for a while, I was watching the story on TV, then reading the book, and then reviewing both the episode and the book for the ratings guide. That's a grueling pace, and I couldn't keep it up. You you illicitly and secretly sent me a couple of those reviews that haven't been posted yet via email. Do you remember? I did. I sent it to you because... I felt very, very naughty reading those, you know, before they were posted, but I enjoyed it very much. And you have not shared them, which is to your credit, means that I can trust you. If you're a good little boy, maybe I will send you some more. (laughs) Okay, hang on. We we totally got off track now, didn't we? Totally off track. I was talking about your original and my sentimental favorite of your three podcasts, the the, the Nymon Be Praised! So you finally invited me out to season three of and I might be praised. And we discussed <laughs> season 20, story by story. And this is most famous because you oh. and I nearly came to virtual blows over a little <laughs> favorite of mine called the King's Demons. Oh, God. it was That was the best five minutes of podcasting I've ever done in my life. Jack had to play referee and separate us out and start yelling at us and saying, rules, you first, you second. Oh my god, it's such a cracking episode. Like I wouldn't normally uh, endorse my own stuff. But go listen to that episode, because Jason and I literally, the claws are out. <laughs> but the story before King's Demons is Enlightenment, and when it comes to Enlightenment, you and I are of the same religion. Enlightenment is probably the greatest Peter Davison story, and the biggest crime that Enlightenment commits is that Linda Barron is only in parts three and four, and there's just not enough of her. However, she is, you have to figure that a woman in her mid-40s, which is what Linda Barron was when she did Enlightenment, was not getting that kind of role on television at that time, where she was bawdy, she was lusty, the script doesn't punish her for it, she's showing off her physique, she is performing theatrically for the camera, and she has incredible chemistry with Mark Strickland that you've never seen. I think she's got a credible chemistry with uh, Lee John as well, actually. I credit Lee John for giving a good performance. I know people think that he's ridiculous. I know he was not an actor at that point. He is matching her beat for beat, intensity for intensity. That is the only way you can play it. 
They're gaining on us. Mm. <laughs> Joe, you can't see it, but Joe is currently Lee Johnning in front of the camera, swaying back and forth hypnotically, like Lee John in his music videos, steering the Buccaneer. Let me tell you something, right? The um, role of female villainess in Doctor Who, that is a hotly contested position, yeah? And Linda Barron's rack is in my top three. Now, there's some fabulous ones out there. Cesar of Diplos, the Rani, Lady Adastra. You know, there's some marvellous, marvellous female villains. But there's just something really sexy about Captain Rack, I think, you know, she sizzles. You rattled off a list of the great Graham Williams era female villains, but you didn't go far back enough in time, and you're forgetting the great granddaddy of them all. You are forgetting Stephanie Bidmead's MAGA in Galaxy 4, which when it was discovered, nobody realized how good she was as MAGA, and that word has taken on a dreadful significance here in the States, thanks to the former ex-president. Uh, MAGA is such a great villainess because she is literally talking direct to camera for most of that episode, thanks to the director, Derek Martinez. And she is really good, too. So let's just take a moment to shout out for Stephanie Bidmead as well. Excuse me. If you want to talk about speaking directly to camera, the end of episode three of Enlightenment is possibly Linda Barron's best acting moment in her entire career. All right, Joe. I'm going to throw the mic over to you for the next 60 seconds until I get my copy of the book. You are in charge. You can vamp into the microphone. I'll be back in a minute with a special treat. Okay, well, I'm just going to keep talking about Linda Barron then and how marvellous she is in Enlightenment. Um, I particularly like the scene where she has Mark Strickson chained up, and I think Linda Barron enjoyed that scene very much. Oh, no, I'm being a bit filthy. I need to stop talking. Honestly, imagine a pod co-host vanishing off to get a book in the middle of it. I mean, I would never... I would never treat my guests like this, honestly. Anyway. <laughs> no, but Linda Barron is having to play an eternal in enlightenment. So she's having to bring a, a certain unworldly element to her performance. Hello, Jason. I haven't insulted you once since you've been gone. Um, no, I'm just saying that Linda Barron plays um, an eternal in enlightenment so she has to bring a certain unworldliness to but actually i think it's quite an earthy performance isn't she is it a pirate queen and she is loving it and she enunciates her words like she is savoring wine at the same time and if you look at the way that she interacts with mark strickson she is walking literally in circles around him in her in her high-heeled boots it is a very studied performance but let's get back to that part three cliffhanger I'm sitting there, 11 years old, watching this thing. I had maybe been a Doctor Who watcher for two or three weeks tops. All of a sudden, and I hadn't discovered girls yet in, at age 11. This is um, late 1984. I was a couple of years away from that happening. But when she's looking directly at me through our little 19-inch color TV, and she is sneering out her words... Not sure. Well, I don't know, I don't know about Peter Davison sticking his head out of the logo. What's that all about? Yeah, but look, it, it, he's taken out the C and the T. It says Door Who. <laughs> You've never seen this before? There's a whole run of Davis and Target books where it's a photographic cutout. Well, of I'm Steve sorry, but then Davis you've got a whole run of Door Who books. <laughs> it's beautiful. No, it's a beautiful cover. Anyway. 
Is she going to, are you going to read out some prose that describes her in a sexually voracious way? I'm not going to read out the prose because it's not there. When you watch, when you watch the special edition of Enlightenment that came out for the DVD, they cut out that rant. And that rant was not in Barbara Clegg's script because it's not in the novelization. That must have been added on at the last minute. I'd love to think that Linda Barron wrote it herself. But look, imagine, no, 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 wait. When I'm reading the book as a kid, I get to the part three cliffhanger and it ain't there. You said it yourself. You know what I did? Oh my God, I love you. If you can, if you can read that out. Oh, sorry, I can't read your handwriting. It's appalling. I can't read that. Hang on. <laughs> well, no. Do you know what? Actually, I've got to be honest with you, Jason. Uh, my my handwriting is terrible as well. My teacher said it looked like someone. Uh, he said it looked like a spider had stepped in ink and walked across the page. You weren't a very nice teacher. <laughs> That's not very nice. <laughs> Hang on. So you're telling me in the special edition version of Enlightenment. They took out Linda Barron talking directly to the audience. They were cutting the stories down to make them an hour long in the special edition, and they were adding slightly less dated visual yeah, effects. So that was one enough of the as it is. You can't take out what little of her there is there. I think we need to take the word special out of that special edition. So anyway, here I am on Long Island in 1985 with the book, and the cliffhanger's not there, so I wrote it in pencil. So I drew an arrow down from the part of the page in mid-sentence, and I wrote all that I could remember of her rant. I wrote, you fool, doctor. It will only result in your death, exclamation point, part four. <laughs> oh, I love you. That's so cute. That is so cute. That could have come from the mouth of Simon Hart, you know. I was Linda Baroning my novelizations. Resist any further, doctor, and you will regret it. really think your ephemeral mind could defeat me? Lost. All that awaits is your ultimate destruction. <laughs> this is before I had the episode on VHS, so I was doing the rant from memory. And do you I'm... know what's wonderful is when she's introduced in that story at, in the party, do you remember when she's introduced to the regulars and Tegan looks over and says, oh, she's beautiful. Now, don't get me wrong. Linda Barron was a very beautiful woman and she's certainly accentuating her assets in that costume, if you know what I mean, um, and, you know, and living it up. But like you know, um, yes. she was a little bit away. She wasn't conventionally beautiful, was she? And I love that they did that, and they they had that line, and that you had Tegan acknowledging that as well. That that's really that's doing something for a more mature woman in Doctor Who, which is very refreshing. Had Doctor Who been an American production instead of a British one, I'm I not sure they cast someone like the in their twenties, wouldn't it? I mean, American conceptions of what beauty is have changed over the years. However, in the mid '80s, I don't think that the Linda Barron, you know, woman in her mid '40s with that kind of physique, I don't know if that gets shown on American screens. I really don't. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that that is like a massively complex performance because I don't think it is. But I don't think it's needed. What is needed is somebody that draws your attention, chews the scenery amazingly, and chains up Turlo and behaves in a very threatening way. She's fabulous. She's just fabulous in Enlightenment. 
you need to have a villain that you can root for. It is either a villain that you love or that you love to hate. The worst thing Doctor Who can have is Cavan in the Space Pirates, who is such a boring, flavorless villain. That's not what you were saying when we did the Space Pirates commentary. You were saying that was the best story of all time. That was an April Fool's Day episode, (laughs) Joe. But, you know, um, what's fabulous is that sequence where, you know, where she's um, in the room with the eye and her head's... And it's it's visually mental that sequence, isn't it? And she's there, like she's doing a full on serverland maximum power with her arms wide. Oh, she's just loving every second of it. I mean, it is a delicious performance. And again, parts one and part two, the Doctor is not on the Buccaneer yet. He's on uh, the the Edwardian racing yacht. Captain Stryker does a very. It's a good performance, but it's not a very fun performance because he's not chewing the scenery. When Linda Barron shows up, flips the story on its head, and then she is the Black Guardian's agent, and she is playing up to it, and then she has Lee John as her number two, so the two of them are a great double act. And she's actually, they don't show her death on screen. You are allowed to think for several minutes that she has won. They do, but I wish we'd seen her death because, you know, she, she would have given a heroic performance at that point. But, you know, there's one thing I really, really love about this story is there is an element of sexuality to it. And I think that definitely comes from having a female writer and a female director. You've got Barbara, Barbara Clegg writing and Fiona Cumming directing. And then, you know, you've got fabulous women acting in it, Janet Fielding and uh, Linda Barron. And what I really like is she obviously she chains up Turlow. And I did talk about that a little bit when you went off for a little wander there a second ago. Um, Joe, I give you the keys to my podcast. And what do you talk about? Um, and uh, so, but she's clearly like flirting like mad with Mark Strickson whilst threatening him. Uh, it is it is a bit sadomasochistic, but she also is very flirtatious with Janet Fielding as well in those scenes, and I really like that, you know? This is like the parting of the ways 30 years earlier. That is exactly true. It took until, you know, the Chibnall era to finally get that same combination of female writer female director, female lead. Enlightenment, I'll say something else. Enlightenment is a very careful story. It knows exactly what it's doing, and it's amazing that it survived Eric Sayward's script editing. In part one, you're on a 19th century Edwardian racing yacht. The only characters you see are men, because the Eternals are cosplaying based on what they see. If you go to the Edwardian world of the 19th, all you're going to see are men, 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 men. She's doing this on purpose. And then she pulls the camera back in part three, and you get the women running the show, and they're so much more effective than the men. And then you have the relationship between Mariner and Tegan. Any woman knows what it's like to have to fend off the advances of a male who doesn't realize that you're not interested and just keeps going after you because he can't read the signals. Enlightenment is the first Doctor Who story to ever lean into the female side of that chase rather than just showing the male side. Rack doesn't care whether you're interested in her or not. She's still going to pursue you hotly. You know? But do you know what's unfortunate about that? And I think it denies Linda Barron a really fantastic scene is that that story is the last of a trilogy. So the climax of the story has to be the Black Guardian, the White Guardian, the Doctor and Turlo. Whereas I think... 
if this had been a, a, a story in its own right, then she would have been a part of that climax. It probably would have been the good eternal, the bad uh, eternal, the doctor, you know, and you know, like, but basically in every single doctor who story, the villain of the piece is part of the climax, you know, and yet she's summarily executed before that to make way for, and that's a shame, you know, it doesn't detract anything from her performance, you know, and, and how eye catching she is, but it is a shame. I would love to know, what the original script had for its last 15 minutes, because all that stuff that you get on screen was written by Eric Sayward to conform enlightenment to this Black Guardian, White Guardian trilogy. She didn't write that stuff at at the end. That's all Sayward. So you have to wonder how her script ended. And I guess we'll never know, unless someone out there has it. I don't know. Maybe it'll be on the, when the Blu-rays finally come out for season 20, maybe we'll finally get to see it. If somebody has read it, I've never seen a summary of it. But I'd love to know how that thing originally ended and what role Captain Rack would have played. In don't the you love as well, though? Like, you know the bit where she like uh, does her hand in front of Tegan and makes her freeze? Yeah. And then puts the special ruby in a, a tiara and, that, and then she unfreezes her. And I love how she goes from uh, being like nicey nice to being absolutely villainous the second Tegan can't hear her. But even when she's being nice, there's just an element of like, you know, I'm not allowed to swear on this podcast, or is this PG-13? This is a PG-13 podcast. <laughs> I'm going to do bad things to you, whether you like it or not. There's always an element of that in her performance, even when she's playing nice. But this is the first Doctor Who story really written from the female perspective. Tegan's point of view of being chased by Mariner, which she couldn't care less. Rack's point of view about wanting to achieve uh, power and command. The second Doctor Who story written from the female point of view is the one that you and I are talking about on a coming episode of Hamster with a Blunt Penknife. It's the only Sylvester McCoy story that uh, has not been covered so far. There you go. I'm going to leave a little teaser as well. Bar- Linda Barron in Enlightenment, she is, it is um, an example of JNT stunt casting because she was a name. Like She was very well known. Open All Hours was getting like 20 million viewers. She was a well-known actress, and she'd been in Corrie. I'm not sure she'd been in... No, EastEnders hadn't been around yet, but she she was in EastEnders later on. Like, you name me a well-known British show, Linda Barron played a part in it, either a bit part or a couple of episodes. The Upper Hand, Minder, she, she was in absolutely everything. So she was a well-known name. This is a really, really good example of JNT stunt casting where the role and the actress marries beautifully i can't disagree so well that's what we're about to come to we're going to close this interview with closing time so i watched closing time once and only once when it came out i have no recollection of watching closing time at all i know that i saw it i know that i was underwhelmed i know that i didn't recognize linda Barron until i saw her name in the end credits not being in the UK, I didn't put two and two together. And if there was any advanced publicity, I had totally missed it. I have not watched it since September 2011 until about an hour ago. Now, as you know, Joe, or maybe you don't know, I am going through a Doctor Who pilgrimage on the Twitter. And I started with Unearthly Child in October 2020. And now, as we are here in mid-March 2022... I just finished Journeys and the Stolen Earth, and I am now doing a quick run-through through Sarah Jane Season 2, and I'm about to get to the specials in between Season 4 and Season 5. So I am right now at the very end of 2008. 
So it's taken me about 18 months to go 45 years through Doctor Who. Closing time is three more years in the future. I didn't want to watch the whole episode because I didn't want to spoil the pilgrimage. So what I did was something that only a guy who would take the novelization of Enlightenment and write Linda Barron's rant in pencil would do. I went to the transcript. I marked off which scenes had Linda Barron in them. And then I fast-forwarded through the episode only to watch Linda Barron's scenes. So I just watched Closing Time, and I did not see a single Cyberman or Cyberman because she well, was not oh, in any of those scenes. You are fabulous, Geek. You are. So <laughs> what are you going to tell me about Closing Time that is going to make me want well, to rush through the I'm screen and say, throttle you? Well, no, you, I thought you were going to say that you watched Closing Time in its entirety, and I was going to say, I'm so sorry, after the meteoric heights of series four of new who that you had to skip forward to the, you know, the appalling series six, but you didn't do that. So that's fine. Um, what I want to say, so I, I'm going to plug another podcast. Now I went on to flight through entirety recently and did a, um, a conversation about closing time. And I was the dissenting voice in that. And I found it, yeah, like you very underwhelming, uh, average, you know, and for a Cyberman story, distinctly average you know they were like they were like the the low-end cybermen they were like revenge of the cybermen cybermen you know but the one thing we could all agree on all four of us that's me jack shanahan brendan jones nathan bottomley was how warm and wonderful linda barrett's performance was and she's only in a handful of scenes and it's not the most memorable role in the world but i think she's the most memorable thing in it and I would have happily have had spent the the episode with her, the, the lodger style, you know. It's a more subtle performance than the singing in the Gunfighters, and it's certainly not Captain Rack because she's now probably seventy years old. She's playing, you know, the uh, the cashier like floor manager. She knows everything about the store, and she knows everybody's relationship, and she has all the gossip, and she has. As opposed to Rack, who had this cruel twinkle, Linda Barron, as Val, has a warm twinkle in her eye. And she's figured out that Eleven and James Corden are totally in a relationship together. And they can't see it. She's the only one who realizes it. And she knows everything about everybody. But she gets along so well with Matt Smith in those scenes. They are twinkling around each other. Because it's primarily just the two of them. And then she has the one scene with James Corden in her final scene. She's never in danger. She's not the villainess. She's there as, you know, color, performance. She is there to give dimension to the store. She is a warm, wise, slightly saucy character. She has always got a smile on her face. This makes me... It's it's the Jodie Whittaker effect. She's always beaming, and so I'm always beaming. But also as well, okay, I worked in a department store for the first five years, from 15 to 20, I worked in a department store. And let me tell you something, yeah? The whole time I was there, there was a vow running the floor, all right? Mumsy, bosomy, looking after everybody, cheerful, chipper, she i don't it's almost like she's it's a little peek into my childhood that role because i'm just like yeah i remember being in the department so i remember that sort of character i just think she's lovely she's really really lovely and i think it's a shame we don't get more of her like you say a very big role because it's a cyberman story first of all and it's actually no it's a dr james corden story first of all and a cyberman Mm. story second that makes her tertiary Uh, in the 
climax of this story, I'm sorry, I'm going to do a little spoiler now, even though you haven't seen it for a while, it appears that James Corden might be turning into a Cyberman, right? Yeah? Now, that is not a consequence that I particularly care about, you know? If that occurs, then it just means we won't have to watch that bloody awful uh, show that he does over in America anymore. Uh, what's it called? The James Corden Show. I have not watched late night television in so long, I've never... A lot of his stuff goes viral when he's doing the carpool karaoke, but I've never actually watched I'm the show. I'm not invested. However, if they'd have put Val in that position, I would have been in a cold sweat on the edge of my seat. But it's because Linda Barrowman... Linda Barrowman. Sorry. Linda Barron. That's <laughs> so you. wonderful in the role. She, she exudes amiability. And how different is that from Rack? In her three performances on Doctor Who, she gives three very, very, very different styles of acting. And she is... But it's also, it is worth noting as well that there was a fair amount of pre-publicity about Linda Barron being in Closing Time. And there was lots of pictures of her behind the counter looking jolly. Um, And that's because, um, quickly diverting from Doctor Who again, she was never out of work. So, and obviously I'm... English, so I saw her in pretty much every show that she ever appeared in. She was a very, very well-known face, and this is an example of Stephen Moffat doing a bit of stunt casting in the JNT mold. And again, it pays off. She's brilliant again. Well, Chris Chibnall does a lot of stunt casting too, and I think for the most part, Chris Chibnall's stunt casting really, really works. And Bringing over his torpedo from the U.S., Chris Noth maybe doesn't work quite so oh, well, but that's a story I think for he another is one day. Of the best villains in New Who. He's so comic book. I have been a fan of Chris Noth because he was on Law and Order, which is my show, and he, I've been following him for thirty years. He has recently gotten into some Me Too trouble, oh, and that oh, may put a damper on his career. So we might never get him back to close out his trilogy. Jason, there's nobody the safe. It's like is literally nobody up to like everyone seems to be up to no good. It's it's no good, is it? The the point is, I I love Chris Noth. I didn't love the character that he was assigned to play by Chibnall. However, stunt casting generally, I like it. Even when this, so, I mean, look for example, Nicholas Parsons. Nicholas Parsons is, is an example of stunt casting. I had never heard of him in the states. I just saw a guy giving a really intense, thoughtful, pained performance as Wainwright, and I was taken with it. I didn't realize he was considered stunt casting. I didn't realize he was playing against type. I just thought he gave a great performance. So it helps coming at this from the states when you don't know who the actors are, when you can enjoy them just for the performance they give. And I'm exactly the, the same when I watch. Credits. Uh, you know, I'm a massive Star Trek fan. I've got a Star Trek podcast, but I don't really know when I'm watching this if a very famous American is suddenly in an episode. So it's very interesting that where you watch the show, where you've grown up, absolutely determines sometimes how you react to certain parts of it. Um, but looking at Linda Barron as a whole, yeah? Looking at it as a whole, she, you get a marvellous uh, singing performance in The Gunfires. You get a marvellous villainous performance in Enlightenment. And you get a marvellously warm performance in Closing Time. However, I would have liked a fourth showing for Linda Barron where she just could own, own the story because she doesn't own the gunfires and she doesn't own she owns two episodes of enlightenment and she owns every scene she's in in closing time 
I would have just loved just one more, just one more big showing for her, you know? And it could have been something completely like diverse and different because she's already proven in those three roles. Absolutely. That, that she's an actress that can, of many hats. It would have been nice to have her kind of as a Ruth doctor type, you know, someone who's just the lead for one episode and then gets to, and then gets to go and do her thing somewhere else. You're right. We never got Linda mm. Barron as the My principal God, guest. Star. Dr. Stalker, you should be the showrunner. That'd be amazing. <sighs> it's never going to happen. I can, I can run this little podcast and that's, that's what I run right now. So let's give you the last word. Do you have any more Linda uh. Barron impressions <laughs> for us? Do you know what? Do you know what? Like when I put on the spot like this, I can never think of any lines. Like I love the, I love her character. What is it? Um, what's your intention? Sabotage? <laughs> Did she say that at one point? Um, yes. I can, I, I can absolutely see her hands on hips behind Lee John while he's at the wheel. So I'm doing it again. <laughs> You're Lee Johnning again. I asked you for a Linda Barron. Well, sorry, I was, yeah, John. in that story, story the two of them are basically always together um i will say again that i really wish she'd had an exit scene a proper exit scene and i know they're trying to they're trying to like build suspense in the climax so like oh my god maybe rax won the race but they kind of blow that pretty quickly that she hasn't so um yeah it would have been nice would have been nice all right well joe it's been great having a chat with you about Linda Barron, our mutual favorite. We will have you back on in a few months to talk about an actual Target book. I will not reveal can which I one Can I say one yet. more thing before I go? You can certainly try. Why do you look worried right now? Because <laughs> you said you are about to say Rude. something. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I want to say was this, was um, what a marvelous idea this podcast is. This Target book podcast is and you are pulling in some of the best podcasting talent i can think of to talk about this range and having podcasted with you uh, what have we done the attack of the side men we've done help me out here come on war machines legopolis the war machines and warriors of the deep warriors of the deep and we did one uh, april fool's day performance of uh, the space Pirates. you've driven more trap one episodes than I could shake a stick at. Like, it's about time, frankly, that you authored a podcast. And I'm really pleased it's about. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to say, I, I, and I think focusing on something like this, which might seem a little niche, but actually I think target novels are embedded in Doctor Who fandom very, very fondly. Uh, that this is a basically unexplored corner of Doctor Who podcasting as about time is here. I will give credit to Tony Witt, who runs the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. He goes in story order. So he started with Unearthly Child in 2016, and he has just gotten through City of Death. He was a guest on this show for episode seven. We talked about Day of the Daleks, and I've done one episode of his podcast, and we're in negotiations to get me back for the second appearance uh, with an upcoming Tom Baker's late Tom Baker story. So the way my show differs from his is I am going in publication order. I'm talking about the evolution of the line and the evolution of the prose, and I'm looking for the operational art of Terrence Dix. So I'm doing what he does. I'm just coming at it from a different angle. So my show is meant to be the companion piece to his. 
and I don't know if the market can bear two separate target podcasts, but I I'm going to try it notice, as long know, as I have an audience. Uh, if I come at you with an opposing opinion, you come right back at me. If I come at you with a compliment, you, you deflect away from it straight away. You're a humble man, Jason Miller. It is my professional training as an attorney where I cannot let any statement go unchallenged, well, I even am if I agree with it. the last word on this podcast, and you knew that was going to happen, right? And that is, to quote... The 1996 TV movie, It's About Time. I hope you don't mind my saying, Doctor. But I think you look ever so sweet, you and your partner and the baby. Partner, yes, I like it. Is it better than companion? Companion. Sounds old-fashioned. There's no need to be coy these days. I've not noticed anything unusual around here, Lady Val. Well... Yes, yes. Mary Warnock saw Don Petheridge snogging Andrea Groom outside the Conservative Club on his so-called day off golfing. Yeah. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea after all. And then there's that silver rat thing. What? And that was the one, the only, the incomparable Joe Ford, who you know from podcasts such as Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, and then I'm on Be Praised, among many, many, many others, joining us to talk about Linda Barron. Coming up next is an interview with a good friend of mine who is one of the foremost collectors of the Doctor Who novelizations. Let's take a listen to a chat I had earlier with Dale Santos. So, Dale, I first met you at Gallifrey One in Los Angeles probably about five or six years ago, and you are one of the fixtures at the convention, so I always make it a point to come up and say hi to you whenever I'm down there. And you've been a great help to me in filling in some of the remaining holes in my collection. So when I was a kid, which is when I assembled the bulk of my Target books, I was not collecting the peripheral stuff. I was not collecting the Companions of Doctor Who which are those three books in the mid-80s. I did not collect the the quote-unquote lost stories from the cancelled season 23. And I only had the 1980s cover variants because I was not collecting in the 70s. I was too young. And you've been a big help to me in filling in the remaining holes in my collection. But what I don't know is how and when you became a Doctor Who fan here in the States. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it it started actually in the... I believe it was around the mid seventies, maybe a little earlier than than that. And it was just a quick, it, they were showing it not on PBS stations, which became, you know, it's as you and I both know, that's became the home for years and years for Dr. Who, but it started actually, I think it was, um, it was either CBS or NBC. I think it was CBS was playing some of the Pertwee ones out of order. And I had no clue what I'm watching. And that was the first little touch of it. So the, I forget if it was 72 or 75. I'm a teenager. It's like, what am I watching? I remember it had um, Alpha Centauri in it because that kind of stuck in my craw. So then we jumped to about 1980. Okay. And I used to go up to Berkeley, California by the UC Berkeley campus. And I had a friend and he was all into like horror monster, famous monsters and uh, Filmland magazines. And I was more of a um, comic book guy. But I 
would go to a bookstore called Moe's Bookstore. It had a lot of cool used books right on the main drag there, Telegraph Avenue. You know, you had bookstores, record stores, some head shops, you know, selling pipes and whatnot. Hey, it's Berkeley. So what do you expect, right? So <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. I've been there. <laughs> I think I may have just picked up, as I recall, the first book was that Avon book from 1967 that came out. It's a paperback that was really the first American release of a paperback in America. That's probably I dabble. I was just dabbling because I kind of remembered, oh, that wasn't that that program? But I wasn't sure about anything. So eventually, like a lot of people, the PBS thing started happening. And on the uh KTEH, Channel 54 out of San Jose, California. And that's when the juices really started flowing and I got into it and I'd go right back up to Berkeley again. And uh, I think the first book I ever bought outside of the the uh, movie, uh, not the movie version, the 67 version that I just mentioned was um, as far as a Target book, an actual Target book was uh, Auton Invasion, the one with the funky kind of Looks like the, I think that was uh, Alan Hood did that cover. It almost looks like somebody was on LSD when they did it. It's just trippy. I mean, the big eye thing. See, the Auton Invasion that I have is the 80s release. So it's got the blue spine and it has an enormous octopus dangling in space. Oh, I stand Wrapping its tentacles around the planet Earth. I'm talking about, I said, I'm talking about terror of the Autons. I stand corrected. Oh, got it. Yes. So I covered Terror of the Autons about a month ago on this program, and that is, it's a little more realistic than the one that we got on television. It's an actual <laughs> octopus Indeed. slash squid hybrid with, with, like you say, the huge glowing eye uh, looking out at the camera. It was, now, the 70s version of that is much preferable. That's the one with the Peter Brooks comic book illustration, and that's one of the ones you helped me upgrade to. I, concur, I concur wholeheartedly. It's, the irony is, at the time, the uh, from what I get, Target books didn't like what he did with those four covers he did. The giant robot, the the Autons, the um, the uh, Planet of the Spiders, and what's the other, and the Green Death. I personally really dig them. They have that kind of comic book vibe to them. But that's why they brought Achilles back right after that because they didn't really enjoy them. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't get it. I get it. You get it. But they didn't get it that they're pretty cool looking. They were not listening to the collectors. Yeah, thank you. But that kind of started the juices flowing. And that's where I would always, that was kind of where, I, you know, bearing in mind, this is in the 80s where there was no internet. I, I would buy things from the, the United Kingdom and it was the, either a brutal phone call that cost you an arm and a leg and or you sent a letter and the guy people over there would send you back photos or whatever. It was really, I mean, we have it. So we haven't made so much nowadays in that sense. God, I mean, it's, it's great. <laughs> the world's shrunk. You can just use eBay or whatever, Facebook on and on, but that kind of started the juices flowing with the collecting. Yeah. I was lucky enough to live in an area where my local bookstore would have two shelves worth of the Target books at any given time, and they had such turnover that when I would go every two weeks, it would always be a completely different set of books on the shelf. Oh, man. So I was lucky enough to get most of my collection within a five-year stretch uh, between 85 and 89, and then I bought the Stragglers as they come, came out, and the couple that I missed, I was able to get at 
when I was going to the Visions conventions in Chicago in the mid to late 90s, I got the last two books that I hadn't purchased off the shelves in the late 80s. So that was Power of Kroll and Horror of Fang Rock. Power of Kroll being my very last of the targets. How long did it take you to complete your original collection, your first, I guess, 160? Well, bearing in mind, I've been doing this so long that at the time you didn't have them all out, right? I mean, you didn't have all 100 and what, what are we at? If you add all the variants, what is it? 160 something? If we're, I don't mean the variants as far. We're talking about the original. You know, bearing in mind, they started this in the 80s, yeah. so they were still putting them out is what I'm trying to say, right? You know? So um, I think the line finally closed out in the mid-90s with the two John Peel books and the Barry Letts adaptation of the radio play, Paradise you know, of Death. I was pretty religious about getting them all. So that would have right about when those, you know, what was it? Evil of the Doubt, Power of the Daleks, Evil of the Daleks, and maybe Paradise of Death. And that kind of is construed as the, the, you know, last of the Target slash Virgin books. Probably right when they came out. So by 1994, you have pretty much the you have the entire collection. You have one of each book, right? I do. By then, I definitely had every one of each book, and I also I don't even know if I was getting into the um, trying to get all the you know first editions at that point in time or not. But I know because I'd been doing it so prior, you know, to the, doing it a lot earlier than a lot of people. Some of what I had were the earlier variants meaning the block logo, the block logo 12 that I really love, or the, uh, the four um, uh, Peter Brooks covers, which are really awesome. I just love that comic book vibe he has with them. At what point did you start going back and getting all the cover variants, so the, you know, the three or four different covers for a given title, for example? Probably in the 90s to a, to a certain extent, but then I kind of took it to the next level and wanted to get every edition. Meaning if you had eight copies of a doomsday weapon, different uh, issues, uh, what would you call it? Different reprints and whatnot. I would get that. That just started probably in the last five to 10 years where I said, I want to get every one of them. Cause I, used to get hardbacks once in a while at a place called Dark Carnival, which was another really cool Berkeley, California. Wasn't on Telegraph, though, <laughs> like most of them. And I'd go in there. And, get, <laughs> and, you know, so the hardbacks, I never aggressively went after those, which I kind of feel sorry I didn't because at the time I probably could have got them for a lot. Obviously, get they would be a lot cheaper than they are now. But um, just probably within the last five, ten years, I started going, huh. Ah, Nobody's put together every edition, every reprint of these books. So it'll give me something to do since I'm not going after these hardbacks. So kind of just, I don't know, kind of, I got to the point where I have all the books. What can I do next with them? And that kind of evolved into going after my quest to get them all. I'm still missing a few there, you know, and I'm always upgrading. I'm all, or at least trying to, which is frustrating, but, um, it's fun. It's all good fun. I always tell people when this stops becoming fun, give it up. If it's not fun anymore, if there's too much competition or fighting, I see that a little bit with these hardbacks where, you know, where it just seems like, you know, it should be fun. Not, you know, to me, it's all about the fun, but um, probably 20 plus years ago is when the, I went saying, what can I do now in between? 
in between getting the the books and then deciding what else can I do? Because like, what do I do now? That's when the artwork thing came to mind. Oh, original Target book artwork would be cool to go after. So, so I want to talk about the artwork in a moment, but just to fill sure. in the conversation about the cover variants. See, Absolutely. I stopped at one cover for each book. And I'm only just now starting to go back and upgrade some of my original covers. Okay. Uh, t- let's take a book like Doomsday Weapon, like you mentioned. Doomsday Weapon would have the original block cover variant. Then it would have a couple of different reprints with different covers and different logos. And I think the last target Doomsday Weapon probably has one of those neon tube early 80s logos. And then you have Pinnacle here in the U.S. where they released nine or ten different editions of Doomsday yeah, Weapon. Yeah. There was and 10. the the pinnacle logo, they were, every time they release an edition, they would change the color of the logo from gold to green to red to blue, for example. So, at a conservative estimate, how many copies of Doomsday Weapon do you have? Wow, probably about somewhere between seven and ten, easily, easily. Wow. And here's the funny thing: you mentioned pinnacle. They're they're like that opens up a whole new can of worms because. Whereas with a Target book, you can look in it and go, okay, this is a second edition. It says as much. Lots of times, those don't really tell you correctly what edition it is. You'll open it up and say, well, wait a minute. This can't be a second because I have a second over here, and this one was price pointed differently than this one. So they can't both be seconds. It's frustrating and and odd how they were printed, the the Pinnacles. And as you mentioned, when they would re-release the Pinnacles, they would change the color a little bit on the logos. Like I have right here, I have Loch Ness Monster right here. There we go. And this is the gold logo. So looking at the copyright page, I'm pretty sure that it's the sixth edition because of the string of numbers at the bottom under the pinnacle address. Okay. There's the 9876. To my mind, that's the sixth printing. Got it. And this was the 1979 release. So this probably came out in 84 or 85. If they were doing one printing a year. Okay. So I'm going to stop at this sixth printing and I'm going to stop at the gold. Got I'm it. not going to go back and co- collect every different pinnacle, which has all the different color variants. But do you have multiple copies of uh, Loch Ness Monster? I do indeed. I have multiple copies of all the pinnacles. It's another one of my little uh, quests that kind of fits in with trying to get all the editions of the um, the Target books themselves, which is what, what, what's a blessing is you get to a point with those Target books, they didn't re-release, you know, like a lot of the Davidson and up to the McCoys. There's no more. There's just so many, and you get one and done. <laughs> if, we're not, if we're not including the blue spines, which opens up the next kettle of fish. <laughs> I am deliberately excluding the blue spines from this conversation <laughs> because I don't have any blue spines. If I were to go down that road, it would be a very bad place for my bank account. <laughs> No, I hear you, man. Um, the majority of those aren't too horrible, the price point wise, but there's a few of those that they're really difficult to find, especially in decent shape. Granted, you know, 1992, God, they're 40 years old, aren't they? Or is that 30, 90, 30 years old? Oh. So. <laughs> We're aging, but not that rapidly. <laughs> no, I am. You're younger than me. So. <laughs> the advantage to the Blue Spines is that they have the doctor on the cover, whereas most of the 80s reprints that I have for the Hartnell and Pertwee and Troughton books, JNT decree that you would not have past doctors on the front of a book if they were no longer the TV doctor. So I have a lot of books where there's 
like Enemy of the World, for example, does not have Troughton on the original cover. All it has is uh, Giles and Astrid. That's so right. if you want to get a copy of Enemy of the World that has Troughton or Salamander on the cover, you have to go to the Blue Spines. That's a good. That's point. less of a concern of mine, but I have I have a lot of friends who are collecting all the Blue Spines, and you know, bless them. I just can I go down that road myself? No, I hear you. We've talked about the targets of the Pinnacles. Let's go backwards in time and talk about some of the what in the UK are the Frederick Muller books. So it's the Daleks, it's the Crusaders, and it's the Zarbi. I have those as Target reprints with the 70s logo, but those originally came out in 1973 with the Block logo. Before Target released those books, there are also some U.S. and U.K. paperback variants of those books. I think there's White Lion, I think there's, you mentioned Avon as well. How many different copies exist of those original three, the Frederick Mullers? Now, you mean different publishers, or you mean how many of the actual copies are out there? Different publishers. Well, you, that a, the Avon one you mentioned, and then, of course, you got a um, – okay, let me think. On the hardbacks, there's also um, um, a Dutch – there's a Dutch variant hardback. It was a one-and-done of the Daleks. Um, you mentioned the white Is line. that the one that has Tom Baker on the cover? No, those those Tom Baker ones are the uh, White Lions. Those are the White Lion ones. White Lion, right, right. And they seem to only turn up in libraries. I I personally have never seen. I've heard people say I have one, but I've never seen a picture or actual non-library copy of those three White Lion ones: of Zarbi, Crusaders, and uh, the Daleks. Um, you know, there's also um, throwing into the mix all the foreign books. A lot of those, you know, not going back to the beginning. The Mueller ones. Those were the first three. And then they had the paperbacks also. I think Green Dragon did Crusaders. And, um, oh, and then there was one with kind of a illustration of a look kind of almost, he almost looks Pertwee-ish, even though it was done in the 60s for the Daleks. I don't think there was a paperback of the Zarbi in the 60s. I could, I don't, not hardback now, but a paperback. There's a Green Dragon and I, right, I think again. Armada maybe was the name of the they they're the ones who did the the Daleks and they did the um, the uh, uh, Crusaders yeah those two but I don't think anybody did a paperback variant in the 60s for uh, the Zarbi you had the hardback that like you mentioned you had the re-releases of those three I myself I'm so particular on those and the it's all, it's not like impossible to find those with a really high grade cover on them. I have a really beautiful example of the first Mueller. It's pink. The next two editions are not pink. They're kind of a kind of camouflage green kind of color. The second and third of the hardback of original Mueller, uh, Doctor Who and the Daleks. Oh, because Zarbi was the second book and Crusaders was the third. So I'm surprised that Crusaders would have a paperback edition, but the Zarbi would not. You figure as the last of the, of the original three, the Crusaders would have been the hardest to come by. I concur. I, I, I never, I kind of scratched my head on it. Maybe they were just dabbling in the field and, you know, bearing in mind, this isn't target. Now we're, you know, before that, I, I, I don't know why they did that. Uh, the funny thing about the Avon variant, which has kind of a funky looking toy, Dalek toy on it. That's the one that they put out here in America in 67, I believe. I think that was Avon books. The funny thing about that is it's, um, the toy on it is a Hertz plastic molders Daleks, Dalek, which was 
Yeah, it's an actual toy that you could have bought. They came in a plastic bag with a header card. They actually had a mechanoid also. So, I mean, most people, and then they use like sparklers on the cover. It literally looks like sparklers behind a toy. It makes me laugh because obviously they didn't have any um, uh, reference material. They just, oh, we'll put this toy up here and we'll put some sparklers and boom, nobody will care. But yeah, that's that's the first three, and I'm still pursuing those. I still pursue those. Those are three, Jason, that are because I'm so. I've I've have gotten copies over the years of the original Crusaders and the original Zarbi, but those two in a really high grade condition. They've eluded me. I've, I've always passed them. Ah, that's just not what I want. But um, those and the second and third editions of the of the pink covered. Mueller for Doctor Who and the Daleks. That's a tough one. Those two, I can't. I've seen them, but they're usually pretty battered up. So, but it, it's fun. It's part of the quest. The quest is the quest, as somebody once said. That's right. As uh, <laughs> as Underworld, right? As Trog Harris. So I'm cheating say. a little bit now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Herrick. I'm cheating a little bit looking at the Wikipedia. So you're right. There was never a paperback release of the Zarbi. There. So Armada did a paperback of Daleks and there Green Dragon did a paperback of Crusaders with their own internal illustrations. And then White Lion did the Tom Baker hardcovers in the mid-70s of all three of them. There but at that go. point, the Target hard paperbacks were already out. That's right. Interesting. That's right. So let's talk about the cover art then. When did you start collecting the original cover paintings? Probably over 20 years ago now. Just seemed kind of an, you know, bearing in mind, I I don't know if I ever told you this, but I had one of the largest collections of 1970s and 60s toys in the world. I bought them from a lot of the Brits over the years, and that was my thing more than the books. But the very, when I decided to part with all this stuff, it went to a good friend on the East Coast. Um, the one element, but the one segment of it that I couldn't get rid of because it's what started my passion for the Doctor Who, the whole thing, were the books. So after, you know, as we were talking, you know, I got all the books and it's like, okay, and this is prior to me wanting to get every variant and every, you know, edition. It's like, well, what do I do now? And I thought, you know what? What's more cool than original artwork, man? I mean, the books are the books and they always will be the books, but I go, to have the original artwork would be something else. So the opportunity arose, arose to purchase some from a, a friend in the UK who had um, actually uh, met, I, I guess he met Chris Achilleos in person. I know David J. Howe was able to get some of the original pieces. This unfortunately was at a time when nobody wanted them. So he, I guess Chris needed to um, move them along to you know get some finances going. So they kind of came through uh, my friend uh, named Mick Hall, who I've known for God. He goes back to the era of, okay, I'm writing him a letter and he's going to send me some photos. And if we talk on the phone, I can only talk for 10 minutes because it's going to, you know, brought way before the internet. That kind of, yeah, right. that, that kind of started it. And I think the first ones I got out of him were a Clause of Axos, an Abominable Snowman, Snowmen. Those were probably the first Achilles ones. So how many of the original cover paintings do you have now? Let's see. I have nine of Chris, Christos Achilleos bits. Um, I think I have, bear with me here. I'm trying to think. I um, those, This nine, I have a um, couple Skeletters, C 
Crusaders, which would be the re-release, and uh, State of Decay, um, Horror Fang Rock, Jeff Cummins. It's a gorgeous cover too, with with the lighthouse yeah. beam sticking it, out. It's interesting, Jason. Um, if if I if you were here to look at it, it's tiny. It's it's like just a little bit over a book size. Whereas some of the others, like, I was imagining a huge uh, twelve by fifteen, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, some of the um, Pearson bits are big like that, and uh, some of the uh, Christos Achilleos are um, what would you? They're probably almost album size, but some are bigger. Planet of the Daleks is one that would be bigger. So, in in, in if you know, if we're including some of the la- uh, later ones that I picked up from uh, Christos, like. Um, Vengeance on Veros. Um, and another thing about that, I'm not sure if you knew this or not. That actually, when he originally did that, he was supposed to have, this is not the original Vengeance on Veros target book, but that re-released the BBC slash Penguin or whoever did. And you see him on the cover. I think he did that one, a Sylvester McCoy and a Davidson one. What's what's missing from that is they wouldn't, allow, he had a noose around Colin Baker's neck, and they nope, you can't use that. So that's why I bought that artwork at Gallifrey because I'm not like into you know the controversy of oh wow they couldn't even use they made him take they took the noose off and he did he wasn't happy about that because it it took away from what he was the expression you saw on his face. I think I have um sorry I'm babbling but I'm trying to tell you I'm trying to think I always know what I have Achilles wise I have nine of them because that's my main thing I think I have about fifteen. Maybe sixteen original target bits. That includes blue spines. Now that's a terrific gallery, though. And you, uh, you at the last gallery, you had on display. You had the I think Chris Achilles demons cover. Is that right? The original no, demons w- cover. Yeah, it was. Sorry, I stand corrected. That was the demons. Yeah, and the thing is with that, I didn't. It wasn't really there to flog it. It was kind of me just paying my respects to Christos because he was a friend, and I just, I just love his artwork. It's almost like back when. ACDC put out Back in Black. It was actually a paying homage to Bon Scott, their singer who had died. But they didn't put on it for Bon. They just said Back in Black. This was Dale's way of just showing it kind of. I didn't, I didn't, anybody in the know like yourself would know, would get it if they know me. And if they didn't know me, but they had some knowledge on the books, they'd know that was an Achilles piece. But I didn't want to sell it really. I just wanted to show it off to be kind of my way of just paying my respects to the guy he's a good guy nice person oh yeah i purchased i purchased direct from him two or three years ago uh the original dinosaur invasion cover with the word clack on it on a t-shirt a blue t-shirt iconic (laughs) unfortunately due to due to the covid that shirt no longer fits me very well after two years of pandemic lockdown and being at home but my goal is to fit into that shirt again it's a great shirt to wear no i i feel you on that one i need to lose some weight myself you know i it's just one of those covid thing it's just so no no that's that's an iconic cover i don't i mean i mean look they used it on his book of all his artwork that's how, it gets no better than clack <laughs> and that's i guess the next book that i have to upgrade to i have the 80s reprint of that with the dinosaur standing in front of saint paul's but i don't have the clack cover that'll be my next quest i guess it's a tough cover to get it's a tough cover to get, and it's really difficult to find it in decent shape. I don't even mean like what I try to find in the context of you know you know 
a nine out of ten. It's just a difficult one to. I don't think they did a lot of them. I think there's two reprints on that in my collection. So there was the first edition of it. And maybe they came out with another one, but that's it. So some of those are get get difficult. The Peter Brooks and some of those early Achilles ones. And if you're trying to get quality condition on them, those block logos are tough. But granted, they are 40 plus years, aren't they? I mean, 73, 74. Yeah, that makes them for what? 40. What is that? 42, 43 years old. They're tough. They're fun, though. And part of this collecting, I think, is the quest. If you have everything, that's kind of why I expanded into artwork or tried to you know, get all the blue spines or what I'm doing now with oh, every edition and reprint. It's just to keep going at it. Otherwise, I'm kind of in a lull. Like, okay, what do I do now? So are there so. any holes <laughs> in your collection that you're desperate to fill or anything that you really want to get that you don't have already? You know, I think even though they're not strictly Target books, that um, the second and third edition of the Mueller's with Doctor Who and the Daleks in a high grade, the Zarbi from Mueller and the Crusaders. But I mean examples that most people would call as like a near-min example. I think those really are what I'd like to that that's kind of like my bucket list has those at the top. Of course, if we're deviating from the books into the artwork, then any Achilles piece it would be you know spectacular to pick up. I have a few of the target books that I want to upgrade, maybe like a, a 75 or 77 variant of the block logo for say the Daleks. Just kind of weird because you're almost going into the next. The other logo, what, what do we call that? The kind of Tom Baker logo, the oval kind of thing. Yeah, the uh, the season season eleven through seventeen is when it was on TV. If there's a proper name for it, I've forgotten. But I mean, when you look at the books, you know, you have the you have those uh, block logos, and then you have those other that other logo. So that's probably it, to be honest, Jason. Those hardback Mueller's and high grade. And there's a few, and they're not really that rare, but I, I'm not, I haven't been real aggressive. It's just like, oh, I don't have the third edition of the Unearthly Child or something in that vein. But those are probably the ones I, because I had all the, I had all the foreign ones, the Japanese, the French, the, uh, the, the one-off Brazilian one, the Dutch, the Turkish ones. I, I had uh, the Portuguese ones. I'm Portuguese. I think we were talking a little bit about that. You know, I had all those at one time, but I just, nah, I can live without those. Now, granted, if the original artwork on some of the some of those came up, boy, I'd, I'd be first in line trying to pick one up. Uh, the Portuguese artwork is pretty bizarre, and the Japanese artwork is really bizarre. But I mean that in a good way. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's about it. I've seen the displays of some of the Japanese cover arts uh, on the Facebook group, and that's just some incredible, incredible artwork. I guess my last question for you is, what is the market like for the original cover art? How do you come by those, and are, are they auctions, or are they all in private hands by now? Just a few of them came by eBay, and that was years ago. Most of them are mono-mono. You know somebody, I know you, and you, you and me are interested, and that's how it goes now. It's really... Um, I, I haven't seen anything uh, eBay-wise for quite a while on that Target artwork. Um, so it's a select group of people that most of the people that own it just love it. Uh, price point-wise, it's hard to assess. But, you know, I mean, there's an old saying about how long is a piece of string. Um, what I will say is, of course, the Achilles ones do. And not just because he passed away. They've always demanded the most. 
and rightly so in my mind. I'm a little biased because, like I said, he was a friend and I just adore his work. But there, it's a very small group of people that have it. I mean, I can name them literally on one hand of the people that have. I'm, I'm talking specific to Achilles now. Maybe five or six collectors out of the 28 covers, and there's some missing. Um, I, don't, I'm, I don't know if I've mentioned that. Before. Oh, which ones are missing? Dalek Invasion of Earth was on its way to me and was stolen mm-hmm. in uh, International Customs in New York years ago now. Um, Chris oh, gave, gosh. Yeah, bummer, man. Tenth Planet was, uh, he. Chris gave it to a friend for some reason to like borrow and it never turned, it never arrived. And um, what's the cover with um, the Brigadier on it? Is that Auton Invasion? It's got Pertwee, squid-looking Auton, and I think, is that the Auton Invasion? Yeah, the Auton Invasion. By, uh, that one's missing. I don't, and there's no background, at least with me, I have no background story with that one. Meaning the one was stolen X amount of years ago, broke my heart, and then the... Um, Chris, somehow he gave 10th Planet to somebody and it went missing. And the other one's a mystery. I've, you know, I've mentioned it. I put it out there, but I've never had anybody go, oh, well, that was, but all the rest of his do exist. The Peter Brooks are missing. I don't know. Uh, I've asked David Howe about that. Um, it's funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I like it. It's just an extension of it. And like anybody will tell you, I don't care which artist did these. When you actually see these in person, and I don't just mean, the Achilles, any of these pieces, they just so they look so much better than what they did on the book, you know. Well, Dale, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to me. Really appreciate this, and hopefully, I will see you at the next galley before too much longer goes by. Uh, my pleasure. Um, I've never done one of these, so hopefully, I did it admirably enough to qualify for some time on your podcast. And thank you for thinking of me, Jason. Appreciate it. Talk soon. And that was Dale Santos, the Target Collector and the Art Collector, coming to us from Northern California. That'll do it for this episode of Doctor Who Literature. Thank you very much for bearing with me. If you'll notice earlier, I did have some audio difficulties recording with Joe Ford. There was a little bit of cross-talk and asynchronized tracks. I've repaired that as best I can, and I hope you enjoyed it. And, of course, I want to thank Linda Barron for all the contributions she made to Doctor Who over the years. And you heard her voice, which is from selections of The Gunfighters and Enlightenment and 2011's Closing Time, her final performance on Doctor Who. Thank you very much for joining us on the Doctor Who Literature Podcast. You can find me on Anchor, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and I write about Doctor Who on Twitter as well under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. I am also on the Trap One podcast, and I have a couple of episodes coming up there. You can find that on all your podcatchers plus trapone.podbean.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Next time, we are venturing into the 1976 Target novelizations, starting with the first one by Terrence Dix, Doctor Who, and the Loch Ness Monster. Thank you again for joining us on Doctor Who Literature, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. (laughs) 